0: Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast, and today is part six of the Horizon series. So these are a series of essays that I wrote at the beginning of 2023, that out of which um, birthed the idea of the Dharma artist. And uh, the Dharma artist is essentially the um, focus of my vocation, is to help people recognize And claim their dharma and that they're artists and to basically create like a new guild of a new type of person who uh is a dharma artist because i think it's the most effective way that i can help shape the future in a beautiful way is to uh collect a bunch of dharma artists together so that we can make and do epic shit And if you're listening to this before February 20th, uh, if you want to hear my post-darkness recap and a deep dive into my uh, mental fitness curriculum that I'll be teaching and starting on March 10th, you can go to my website, erikgotzi.com, and click on the header at the top of the page that's called February 20th Masterclass. Again, if you want to hear what the darkness was like, and if you want to get a deep dive on the curriculum that I'll be teaching about how to become a Dharma artist, and it's before February 20th, go to my website, erikgotzi.com, and click on the link at the top of the page that says February 20th Masterclass. And so this is episode six, or part six, of the Horizon series. Title, Becoming a Dharma Artist. How to Seed a Renaissance This is where I start to move out of my comfort zone. I had a six-month psychotic episode in 2011. Thankfully, I kept it hidden well enough that I didn't end up in a psychiatric system. An essential part of my recovery was discovering Robert Anton Wilson's book Prometheus Rising. It is in that book that I discovered the idea of model agnosticism, which is a metaphysical orientation that essentially says, I don't know, and you don't know, and that's okay. We can't ever know, but we can always be evolving our perspectives. Now, this might sound trite, but for a 21-year-old who thought that they were trapped inside of a maliciously created computer program, it's the difference between a life with paranoid-flavored psychosis and someone who is capable of living their life like I live today. The quote, I don't know, and you don't know, and that's okay, saved my life. I can't understate this. However, a result of model agnosticism is that for the last decade, I have never felt strongly enough about anything to say that I have an ethic or that I would be willing to tell others that they should live a certain way. In philosophical terms, model agnosticism has resulted in me never asserting an ought. Uh, For people who don't know, there's a famous dichotomy in philosophy between is and ought. What something is is one thing. What something ought to be is a entirely different thing. We live in an era where having no convictions about how humans ought to be is actually a sign of spiritual depth and wisdom. But the result of this is that people in the first and second world of the thrice-born journey are the only ones that are active in politics and social reform while the thrice-born consciousness among us holds soft opinions softly. I needed to write these last four articles to bring me to the point where I could begin to claim an ought. What ought you be? How ought you live? Who ought you become? These are hard questions for people who feel pride in not oughting anything. And so I can finally come to the point where I can say, I ought to be a Dharma artist. There is a Buddhist legend that the first bodhisattva was a woman named Guan Yin. She had devoted herself to Buddha's Eightfold Path, and after many decades of digesting her karma, she reached a level of consciousness where she was beginning to ascend. At the very last moment before her full liberation she heard the cries of all the conscious beings still trapped inside of the wheel of samsara. In this moment her concentration faltered and the transition failed. She was back firmly in the world of desire and aversion. She then made a vow, Should I ever become disheartened in saving sentient beings, may my body shatter into a thousand pieces. She then renewed her practice and after many decades arrived again at the moment of the permanent transcendence from the wheel of samsara. But again she heard the cries of all the conscious creatures still stuck in samsara and in that moment she doubted and she shattered into a thousand pieces. And as the legend goes, in this moment of shattering, she had enough concentration to ask the Buddha for help. The Buddha heard her call and turned her shattered pieces into 10,000 hands of compassion with an eye of wisdom in their palm. And each piece was placed in the heart of 1,000 beings who were still stuck in the wheel of samsara. And thus her vow birthed the process of seeding bodhisattvas into the wheel of time. Souls who carry her vow of compassion to help all conscious beings in the wheel find their liberation. I love this story. In my best moments, I see the world as a vast living interconnected body. Gaia is the skeleton. Plants and animals are the muscles and ligaments. Trees are her lungs and humans are her neurons. In our current state, the planetary body is sick in the same way a psychotic is sick. The thing about humans is that we have the capacity to become like stem cells. We have the capacity to transform ourselves into what humanity needs. This myth, this useful lie, suggests that the kind of being we ought to be, if we were capable of becoming, is to be a stem cell. When a caterpillar descends into its cocoon, it doesn't transform from a caterpillar into a butterfly it actually digests itself and becomes a kind of goo that scientists call imaginal cells. These are undifferentiated stem cells that can become any type of cell. The fact that this exists in biology and that we can observe it is one of the most majestic discoveries that I've ever encountered in science. I don't think it's a coincidence that many separate cultures share the etymology between words like butterfly and the words that they use for psyche. I believe that each of us, in the privacy of our own heart, knows what kind of cell we are being asked to become and to help heal the collective body that is humanity. A dharma artist is my personal myth of what it means to be a bodhisattva in the 21st century. A dharma artist is born when the individual has digested their first two worlds, descended into the cocoon of model agnosticism, and finally decided on what they will become. It's more of a listening than a deciding. They decide to listen for their dharma. The metaphor breaks down here because the unique task of the human is that there is no end to how many times we can reimagine ourselves. It seems to be that with each reimagining, we emerge with a new life task. Maybe that life task takes our entire life, maybe we fulfill it and we enter into another transformation, or maybe the absolute mystery comes to fuck our shit up. And out of sheer necessity, at our apparent failure, we submerge back into the imaginal to once again birth a new version of us. But the essential block of this journey for most of our thrice-born brothers and sisters is that they are staying in the cocoon they are staying in the undifferentiated quote everything is equally true everything is equally false there is no such thing as hierarchy don't tell me what to do and i won't tell you what to do a dharma artist is someone who decides to become something which itself is a assertion of hierarchy it's risky because you could be wrong It's risky because you could fail, but it's only risky if you forget that you can always return to the cocoon and become something new. So what is a dharma artist? This is where I step out of the vague poetics and I get into the practical specifics. Here is my current map of what it means to be a dharma artist. 1. They embrace pragmatic mythic play. I switch dharma artists with dharma players sometimes because life often reminds me of a video game. I love video games. They helped raise me. Video games are a deep and profound metaphor for consciousness. With a little excursion into the work of people like Donald Hoffman and John Verveke, one can quickly see how Alice's rabbit hole goes even deeper than the films like The Matrix or The Truman Show. There is an essential reality, but we do not see it. Our lives are deeply analogous to something like a video game. And to take this literally is to trip over the trap of infinite regress. But that's a story for a different time. The truth of the analogy is that as I transform, the game of life transforms. I can play the game of life in a way that improves the game of life. I acknowledge that no one, including myself, knows the absolute right way to play the game of life, but I believe that there are ways that are more right than others and that my life is a continuous evolutionary journey of playing with my current best models, listening to the results and iterating continuously. I play the game of life to help reduce the suffering and improve the flourishing for all beings that I encounter. Mythic play equals the capacity to hold any perspective. Pragmatism equals we cannot know, but we can learn. And we can learn through playing and enacting different perspectives. Number two, the daemon and the acorn. I believe that everybody is born with a daemon and that each of our daemons is like the force in the acorn that produces the Oak tree. I believe that in each of us there is a primordial knowledge of what our dharma is through which is how we most effectively and beautifully contribute to the game of life. I believe that almost all neuroses and mental illnesses and chronic diseases can be alchemized by living our dharma. And to live our dharma would demand that we become mythic artists. By experiencing the grace and vitality that emerges from living our dharma, we will remember the forgotten knowledge that we do not become mentally ill because we are broken. We become quote-unquote ill because the intelligence of our daemon is speaking to us that we are out of alignment with our dharma. And our dharma is always available. It will never abandon us as long as breath fills our lungs and blood moves through our heart. If your daemon is the music that your soul plays, your dharma is the way that you dance. Number 3. Dedicate yourself to a craft. A dharma artist is dedicated to a craft. They know that in order to manifest most fully the whisper of their daemon, they must humble themselves in the eternal school of honing a creative craft. Dedication to a craft teaches discipline, humility, patience, listening, grace, and grit. Through their dedication to their craft, they will experience the highest states of consciousness that humans are capable of experiencing. States like flow and epiphany, insight, awe, and bliss. Through their dedication to their craft, they will become connected to the collective. Art in its final stage is a collective practice. Art is created to be shared. Through sharing their craft, they will be exposed to all of their karma or dukkha or triggers or traumas, and this is good. Through their dedication to their craft, they will have the opportunity to witness and to alchemize their pain and regret and shame and guilt and sadness and fear by using these emotions as the raw material that they put back through their creative process. Through their dedication to their craft, they will also be forced to learn practicality, strategy, and how to navigate the social structures of our time. They will understand that as a part of their dharma, it is their duty to learn how to sustain themselves in order to work on their craft. That means that they will have to learn to navigate finances, and taxes, and selling, and providing for themselves and their families they will understand that this too is a part of their craft. Dedication to your craft will align your souls with the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times. Our craft has the potential to be our greatest teacher, and dedication to your craft will also bring a Dharma artist into the direct relationship with the Ultimate Mystery. They are free to draw their own conclusions or none at all, but they will know that there is something alive that is intelligent and that is giggling on the other side of everything. A dharma artist turns their art into a vocation. Number four, regenerative communication. A dharma artist recognizes that there is an inner and an outer collective, and that their responsibility is to regenerate both. Our inner collective are our parts, our inner child, our internalized mother and father, the many facets of our persona, our dreams, our fears, our nightmares and our fantasies. A Dharma artist recognizes that they are responsible for this inner family. They practice the art of noticing these parts and how they speak to each other. Like a good leader, they step in when conflict arises and they mediate resolutions. They don't exile their grief, or shame, or guilt, or fear, or lust, or rage, or envy. They invite all parts to the table, and like a good leader, they call all parts to mature and develop. Dharma artists also recognize, as above, so below, that the outer collective is our culture, and that what we have not resolved in our inner collective, we project onto the outer collective. They know that if there is any group, or type of people that they exile or ridicule or find themselves obsessively envying or hating that is a sign that something inside of them is calling out for help. Whenever they engage in conversation, they do so as if they would with their inner collective. They listen like a compassionate, loving leader. And in all communication, they see the other parts of themselves and they have learned the skills to navigate any kind of conversation from a state of being that allows for synthesis, reconciliation and healing. They take responsibility for their speech and its effect in both their inner world and in the outer. They're effectively activated mother-father leaders They have the unbounded compassion of a mother, the nurturing boundaries of a father, and the inclination to go first as a leader. I want to hang on this point for a moment. You have an inner collective, and they are arguing with each other every day. And a part of being an artist is learning how to notice all of the different parts inside of you. And most of your art, the really good art that will come out of you, is because there is a conflict in you and that the art itself is the alchemy between two different parts. And so artists who cultivate this craft, they can start to see it in the external world. An artist that starts to take responsibility for bringing resonance between the different conflicts within themselves can better navigate the conflicts in culture. The act of committing to making art consistently can't help but begin to heal the parts inside of you. It is why Carl Jung said that if he could get a neurotic to begin to make art that they would eventually heal themselves. Number five, cathedral consciousness. A Dharma artist does not fall into the trap that the world is fucked. So I'm just going to go get my plot of land and live my life away from the chaos with my family. They don't fall into the trap that everything is subjective, therefore nothing is more true than anything else. They live with the chosen burden that how they live their lives affects the following generations. They recognize that our culture is sick and instead of leaving it, they do their best to hone their dharma towards helping the part of the collective that they can help because they are thinking about the next generation. They are committed to bearing the responsibility of trying to contribute to a cultural cathedral, a multi-generational project for the benefit of the generations to come. This commitment humbles them, because the task is too great to be done alone. No matter how brilliant our dharma may be, the commitment to the next seven generations will demand collaboration between many dharma artists they recognize that they must learn how to work with other dharma artists and how to raise children with them, grow communities with them, and argue and debate with them, and ultimately to build with them. AKA, let's start a dharma artist guild so that we can seed the new renaissance. Number six, lightly, child, lightly. In the words of the luminary, Aldous Huxley, quote, It's dark because you are trying too hard. Lightly, child, lightly. Learn to do everything lightly. Yes, feel lightly even though you're feeling deeply. Just lightly let things happen and lightly dance with them. The foundation of a Dharma artist is this mantra of lightly, child, lightly. They remember that this is a beautiful, fantastic, passionate, gorgeous game and that they have chosen to bear these burdens, to address these problems, and to feel these feelings. Because they love it. They love life. They love consciousness. They love the human condition. And so they don't strive. They don't strain. They play, but they play for real. They are Dharma artists, not Dharma strivers or strainers. They know what it feels like to forget and the feeling of forgetting becomes the reminder to remember. And so, whenever they forget, because they will forget, they remember, because they always remember. Lightly child, lightly. Postscript: This is a beginning. The goal here, that I don't yet know how to do, but which will be the intention of the following articles, is to explore how to add flesh to the mythology of what a Dharma artist is. How do I live it, test it, and refine it? Ben Franklin created a virtues chart to track his personal mythology. Ram Dass went to India to shed his previous personal mythology. Joan Didion wrote to reveal her personal mythology. To step into the 4.5 perspective, to begin the transformation from a imaginal cell into an actual form, you're going to have to start doing. For me, that looks like really dialing in the dedication to the craft part, because I think that I can get people to connect to the profundity of that path, that if I can, most people would see that it's the way. And frankly, I want to live in a world with more dharma artists. So I'm going to end with a quote from Ram Dass. It is better to perform our dharma imperfectly than another's dharma perfectly. I hope that you have enjoyed episode six of the Horizon series. Uh, If you are feeling a stirring in you to become a Dharma artist and to connect with other Dharma artists, I invite you to be brave and to take the leap and to join the curriculum that I'm going to be teaching this year. Um, Throughout this year, I'm going to hold three cohorts of 40 people where I'm going to teach them everything that I've used to go from wrapping burritos at Chipotle to living the life that I have now, where I get to live as an artist and it pays my bills and it helps people to the point where I see people cry and people thank me and I feel aligned with my soul. And that in 2024, anyone who is able to hold a little bit of dedication towards their craft and they have the courage to share consistently, that if they commit to a specific system with a couple of clear goals, they can live as artists. And if you have been listening to these episodes, you're one of these people. And so I invite you to be brave and to join a group of Dharma artists who are going to help build the future. If you feel that call to you, go to fitforservice.com and go to the Mentally Fit Program and join. And if you're listening to this before February 20th, uh, if you want to hear my post-darkness recap and a deep dive into my uh, mental fitness curriculum that I'll be teaching and starting on March 10th, you can go to my website, erikgotzi.com, and click on the header at the top of the page that's called February 20th Masterclass. Again, if you want to hear what the darkness was like, and if you want to get a deep dive on the curriculum that I'll be teaching about how to become a Dharma artist, and it's before February 20th, go to my website, Gotzi.com and click on the link at the top of the page that says February 20th Masterclass. I hope to see you on the inside. Big love.